This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer, I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Kyle Cheka. If you do not recognize his byline from The New Yorker, well, you should. That's the best thing I can say. So the new book is Filter World, How Algorithms Flattened Culture. And I've really been looking forward to this conversation. We're a little behind everyone else's interviews. So if you're expecting that kind of interview, we're not necessarily going to do that. We're just going to have a conversation about what Kyle has learned. But Kyle, I want to start with your experience of the internet, because it sounds like you really came of age with all of these points. I'm a little older than you, so there's some stuff that I didn't necessarily do. I mean, yes, I still carry two phones now, but let's talk about your experience of the internet, starting with, wait for it, AOL Messenger. <laughs> I feel like that was really my like entryway into the internet. And the first time that I realized that the internet was like this separate place that was kind of apart from physical reality and it let you kind of be a different person and interact with other people in different ways. Because when I got on AIM, I think I was in middle school. Okay. And, you know, I would chat with my friends in school during the day and, you know, go about the normal routine. But then at night, there would be this entire other social landscape chatting back and forth on the family desktop computer in the basement. I mean, it was very freeing in a way. I'm sure as many other people were, I was an awkward, uncool middle schooler who did not play sports, did not like you know, join in any clubs or whatever. And so the internet was kind of like my extracurricular (laughs) space. And it allowed me to like be someone else, feel more grown up, like develop this persona or or personality or sense of self that that was apart from my day-to-day surroundings. I think that's really important too, because you're part of this whole wave of a like my brother and I fought over the phone a lot, right? Like a physical phone, but he was also a kid we had an uncle who was a rocket scientist, like a literal rocket scientist. So my brother could plug into an early version of the internet using a handheld phone. And like, I don't even know how to describe the thing that the phone sat in, but we would fight <laughs> over the phone line because my call waiting may not have existed at the time. And there was a lot of like, dude, I need the phone. And there was a lot of get off, you know, whatever. But the <laughs> idea that you had all of this space to roam, right? And then you end up live journal is sort of the next marker for you. Right. There was that transition, I think, from the chat, which was like one person to one person, you knew who you were talking to, to this wider level of the internet and websites, Mm -hmm. which websites were like this public space in a way, like anyone could find your live journal if they tried really hard. And this was, it was kind of like a billboard, I think, or Mm -hmm. a a way to broadcast your, the sense of self that you developed online. (laughs) You could, instead of just projecting it through AIM away messages and like your conversations, you could instead create this blog or diary that existed for other people to read. And that really allowed me to like solidify, I suppose, that sense of self online and deepen my way of expressing myself in writing for sure. I mean, I think I grew up in digital text which, yeah. you know, continues to be my stock and trade. <laughs> well, but also digital text, it, and I want to come back to this, because digital text does have a voice that goes with it. There's a, there's a literal style that goes to the kind of writing that we think of. But your next sort of marker is Facebook, and that's when Facebook is still only for college students. Mm-hmm. 
And I think this is an important distinction to make, like, everyone's on Facebook now, but there was a moment where you had to be a college kid, and it was, you know, a certain kind of school, and then it opened up wider to all college kids. But, you know, at most, you were 22, 23 on this thing, and now, you know, we have everyone on it. But let's talk <laughs> about that early days of Facebook. Yeah, it was it was a closed space in a way. <laughs> like, now yeah. we think of these internet platforms as being for literally everyone on earth. Mm-hmm. Like literally anyone can go on Facebook unless it's mm-hmm. blocked, for example, in China. Right. But Facebook was just for this demographic of mm-hmm. students who were going into college, especially. Right. So I found that that kind of tied my internet personality to my real life personality mm-hmm. in a way, because Facebook kind of demanded that you be yourself online, Your, yourself, mm-hmm. not just like who you felt like you were, right. but yourself as in, Kyle, who is going to be a student at Tufts University and likes these bands and posts these photos of his friends. And I think that was a departure from the kind of like virtual only Mm -hmm. sense of self that existed on the internet before that. You had to have a real identity in a way, like your IRL-ness was was tied to your internet persona. And that's early aughts where you're on Facebook and you're in college, right? Yeah, I think in 2005, 2006 was when it was opening up at least to, first it was Harvard, then it was Ivy League schools, then it was the rest of colleges. And then we get to Twitter. This is old Twitter, not Twitter as it exists in January of 2024. But And part of why I want to bring Twitter into it is this is where your kind of career starts, right? Like you have been working covering as a journalist the whole internet space and social media and algorithms like this has been your job pretty much (laughs) since you got out of school i mean there was some art writing and some other stuff but it kind of came out of twitter for sure i mean i think i didn't grow up around a lot of writers Mm -hmm. like i wasn't exposed to a lot of news consumption or magazines and really twitter and kind of the college newspaper was my first exposure to what journalism was and what what journalists were like in particular. Like, I think I thought of a journalist as a kind of newspaper man, like, you know, beat reporter out on the street or something. And I think being on Twitter circa, you know, 2008, 2009, showed me that, oh no, a journalist could be a lot of different things. It's not just reporting the news or being a war correspondent. It's people who go see cultural stuff in New York or people who just have opinions that they want to express and commentary that they want to publish. And Twitter allowed me to like stretch those muscles for the first time and maybe gave me a poisonous desire to express my opinion to <laughs> large groups of people. But that, that was the start of having that public voice in a way. And that public voice though changes. In a way, your relationship changes with the advent of social media as we now know it, right? Mm. Like, when did you when did you land on Twitter? Uh, probably 2008. Okay, so still really when Twitter was more of a news source and Twitter was growing and there was interesting stuff happening and relationships would get built. And, mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways, the internet was a way of auditioning. <laughs> yes, particularly in work, media. Right? Like, but also, we're talking, you know, this is also around the time that blogging is becoming a thing. And, you know, Heather Armstrong, for instance, was one of sort of the lead mommy bloggers, which is a phrase <laughs> I find really weird. But unfortunately, it 
works in this context. You know, everyone was up in arms when she sold advertising on her blog. And she's like, well, why actually shouldn't I make a living off of this? So you're kind of following this whole crest mm-hmm. of a wave of serious change. Like, you know, originally Instagram was just presenting things in this lovely, nice, straight up, well, kind of as it was posted, chronological order, it wasn't fed by engagement and the algorithm. So one of the things I want to start with with you, though, is the difference between curation and algorithmic recommendation, (laughs) because I think the two have gotten conflated in a lot of people's minds. But then also, I think there are just some folks who might not know the difference, and the difference is not insignificant. I think so. I mean, the, I think the big change that happened in social media over the course of the late 2000s into the kind of mid 2010s mm-hmm. is that it goes from this more niche phenomenon where you kind of knew who you were talking to. You had accessible communities online of people who existed at like a coherent scale mm-hmm. in the hundreds of people rather than the many, many thousands or hundreds of thousands. But then in the middle of the 2010s, a lot of these social media platforms decide to make their feeds more algorithmic. So Mm -hmm. more driven by automated recommendations and they kind of decide what goes in your feed. So rather on early Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you choose who to follow and the posts from those people show up in order. That changes in the mid 2010s when the companies decide that it's going to be better for them and theoretically for the user, but actually not to recommends content to show you what like the data predicts that you will want to see. And I think that's kind of the beginning of us losing our grip on social media in a way, because not only does it confuse what we're consuming, like we're getting stuff that we didn't choose to consume. It also creates this mechanism by which things like get distributed really, really quickly. So a misinformation story can spread instantly, uh, just like a viral TikTok can spread instantly. So I didn't get onto Twitter until I very recently, I mean, relatively recently, it was probably 2018, 2019. Like I would occasionally scan Good for it you. <laughs> and I would, I would say to friends, like, is there anything I need to care about? Like, and then there was a period where I spent too much time on Twitter. And I didn't get onto Instagram until 2019, late 2018, early 2019. And Facebook, I didn't join until 2011. And I, all of them were because of work, straight up. It was because of, I'm in the book business. It was because of work and because of specific projects that I was working on. And I didn't feel like I had a giant gap in my life because I wasn't there. I was kind of like, well, but I talk to the people I want to talk to, and I know about the things that I want. I didn't feel like I was lacking in anything. And I'm really being specific in that phrasing, right? Because there's this whole idea of, like, I'm missing out somehow, right? And I'm like, no, nah, I was good. And my social media at the team at the office was just like, no, you have to join Facebook. And I was like, really? Really? Oh, okay. But I like my privacy, but I did it. And I kind of get it. Like I was really active early on with all, and then, you know, it just, my relationship changes with the information. My relationship changes with the people I'm interacting with, all of this. And for a moment, all of them took up too much time. And I was like, what am I doing? What is going on here? Twitter was the first to go. I'm kind of okay with 
Yeah, I have family in Asia too. And when you have family overseas, like Facebook is actually useful. But now I'm kind of like, okay, what is my relationship with these places, right? Because they are places. They're not, I'm, I'm not, and one of the things in filter world that kind of made me raise an eyebrow, you talk a lot about how passive algorithms make us, right? And you and I, and everyone listening to the show, we all have people in our lives who are like, I do my own research, I do this, I learn my own thing, da-da-da-da-da. I'm like, passive is not a word they would ever use to describe themselves. And passive is not necessarily a word I would use to describe myself either. And yet, here we are. And I want, can we talk about that evolution of algorithms in our brains? <laughs> because Yeah. I mean, I think we've come to expect that these feeds will deliver things to us and that we don't have to necessarily seek things out. We right. don't necessarily have to go looking for something or discover more about what we're interested in. Right. Instead, we can rely on the Instagram algorithm, the TikTok right. algorithm, especially to just kind of show us what we want to see. So I think as social media has become more automated and more right. algorithmic, it's kind of conditioned us into not into very passive consumers where mm -hmm. there's this phrase that Spotify uses of lean in versus lean back consumption. And lean in is when you are focused on the music that you're listening to. You're like tuned in, you're thinking about it, you're deciding what to listen to. Lean back is when you're just kind of letting it wash over you. And that's the zone in which the Spotify algorithm can just recommend you stuff right. and like keep okay. you in that flow state. And I think a lot of social media is lean back consumption where mm -hmm. we're just kind of letting it come to us. And I think if you ask someone who like does their own research right. on, on a subject, probably what they're doing is not going to the library and like checking out academic tomes. Instead, they're like watching a, t a talking head on TikTok who may or may not have any legitimacy or background. And TikTok's not even going to help you know for sure who that person is. Like all TikTok wants is just to keep serving you content. A phrase you coined sort of early in your career was airspace. And it relates directly to how social media and sort of living online, right, the internet, um, changes physical space. And I think this is really important. And I want to I bring this into the conversation before we go too much further. But how did airspace come around and what are you referencing when you use that phrase? I think, and this was kind of the mid-2010s when, when all of these feeds were getting more algorithmic and particularly when the internet became a more visual medium. Like, I think we forget that there was a time when a lot of what was online was like text and maybe slideshows. But with the advent of Instagram and then and YouTube and later TikTok, like the internet was a very visual place. Mm -hmm. And so I found as I was working as a journalist and kind of going to different cities around the world for my work, I would use these kinds of apps to find where to go. <laughs> like I would right. find an Airbnb to stay in on Airbnb. I would look up coffee shops to work in on Yelp or Instagram. And I just found that anywhere I landed, whether it was like Bali or Beijing or Tokyo or Los Angeles or kind of wherever I went, I could reliably find this one kind of coffee shop that had a certain aesthetic, which is very recognizable, I think. It has white subway tiles on the walls, it has reclaimed wood furniture, maybe some mid-century chairs, mm -hmm. succulents and ceramic pots, hanging lights with Edison bulbs in them. 
Like I was in one of these cafes this morning and no one had instructed or commanded these coffee shops to look the same. There wasn't like a parent company who dictated this aesthetic. Instead, it was like a wide range of cafe owners who kind of drifted toward it organically. Mm -hmm. And so I was just struck by the uncanniness of that sameness around the world. And I started to try to figure out what it was. And that was kind of the seed of airspace. Like, why, why is this aesthetic everywhere? Well, it's also a marker of gentrification in a lot of communities. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, gentrification, there's a kind of gentrification on the internet yeah. <laughs> as yeah. well. Like, places that the internet penetrates more, I suppose, mm-hmm. or places that are more online mm-hmm. tend to be more oriented toward a specific kind of consumer. So the conformity is what gets me, right? Like how much everything looks the same. And it's exactly like you're describing. You could be anywhere in the world, right? There's this period, and you talk about travel in the book too, but I remember there's this period. You use Iceland as the example, like suddenly everyone's going to Iceland. I remember that moment too. But there was also a moment where suddenly everyone was in Portugal and everyone was in Montreal and I was, and maybe they were even the same year. And I was like, what is happening? Why (laughs) is everyone everyone going to the same, like, and my brother had actually gone to Portugal for work. He's a photographer and he was there shooting surfers. And he was like, yes, suddenly everyone was there. I was like, "Uh, I don't know what's going on. And it's a trip when I think about it, but that conformity is really fascinating to me because here we are, you know, we're all supposed to be rugged individualists and have our own event. Da, 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 da. And everything's kind of really super, very much the same. Like it used to be, you could go, and I'm going to use a, a simpler example. It's just like even the difference between like Baltimore and Philadelphia or the difference between Miami and Palm Beach, like you knew that something shifted, right? You were in a different place. And now it's kind of like, huh, I could actually be anywhere. And it's wild to me that these are the choices we're making because ultimately algorithms are still programmed by people. Yes. I mean, there are human engineers right? who are developing these things and tech company CEOs who are picking the variables that drive these recommendations. I mean, in Filter World, I spoke with the CEO of Airbnb, right. Brian Chesky, who surprisingly to me, literally told me, yes, Airbnb sends people to the same places over and over again, and it's a problem and we need to stop it. And that to me was just so striking because, you know, I think part of my theory is that the internet makes everything treated as content in a way, like everything is just a form of content flowing through various feeds and accounts. And so on Airbnb, the content is like geography, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the place that you consume is the same as consuming a TikTok video. And so these feeds, I think, redirect people's attention and thus their consumption toward the same few targets. So a place goes viral, just like a video goes viral. And that's such a shift. It's really weird, too, because you and I were just talking about passivity, like passive intake, right? And yet we're living in this wildly on-demand culture that really everything must be tailored to me. This experience must be exactly mine and da-da-da-da-da. And it's like, you know, you can go to Kyoto and, you know, there are the Tori gates going up the Mm -hmm. side of the mountain, right? Like everyone has seen them in a million different. And the thing that made me laugh when I was there is like all of the ads that are carved into the Tori gates, right? So like everyone's doing their Instagram moment and everything else. And I'm like, 
that's not McDonald's, but that's like an ad for someone's insurance company. And <laughs> right, they're like it, sponsored it's, by. Oh, it's so funny. Company. And I'm just like, okay. I mean, it. the visuals are great, but I'm like, y'all, this is like a giant billboard for like every business <laughs> in Kyoto and like the Kansai plane because everyone's looking for luck, right? And this is how they're doing it. And taking that information, right? Like if you don't have the context. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many good things about the internet. Like, I don't, like, I love being able to check in for flights early or, like, you know, be able to find out. There's a lot of stuff that I can do now that's much easier than it was previously. But we're taking things so out of context, right? Mm. And it's a trip. And sometimes it's not a good trip. Yeah. I mean, I think the internet has made a lot of things very frictionless. So Mm -hmm. that's decision making booking your flights booking a hotel deciding what like tour to go on which sites mm-hmm. to visit when when you travel and i think like i mean we just click the buttons and it's it's right. there immediately so i think there's like a passivity again to that kind of decision making and there's a way in which like the displaying of all of these places just as images or tiktok videos or whatever has a way of prioritizing like the aesthetic appearance mm-hmm. over the actual reality of a place. So you go to the Tory gates and you love the orange, like right, right. photograph that you can take the selfie in the middle of them, but that you, you don't know why they're even there. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's not a deep engagement with the place or even like a challenging travel experience. It's instead like a rehearsal of aesthetics that you saw on the internet and a repetition of, the photo that everyone has taken before. And also the monkeys are mean. Like, they're not kidding. Those monkey signs <laughs> make me laugh. I'm just like, y'all, do not mess with it. those monkeys. Will <laughs> monkey. They will absolutely mug you. But when we're talking about sort of the consequences, right, of the experience or the aura or the vibes, whatever you want to call it, right, we're not talking about the actual thing, right? We're talking about sort of what goes along. And you use a phrase in Filter World that I had not previously heard. And and you did pick it up from someone, and we'll get there in a second. But content capital, right? Like, we talk about how movies exist so you can create more content off of them using memes. Or like, hello, book talk. You know, content exists to create more content. But content capital, I think, is a really useful idea. And I think more people should know about it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so this was a coinage by the the academic Kate Eichhorn, who wrote mm-hmm. a book for MIT, I think, called Just Content. Its right. title is Content. And content capital to her is kind of, it's about content that can produce more content. It's almost the ability of one thing to generate more content around it. So in the case of Kyoto, that's it's actually a very good example because the Tory gates have high content capital. Oh, <laughs> like yes, you they can, do. You can take a selfie with them. You can take any photo and the viewer will know where you are and what Mm -hmm. you're doing. Like they're instantly recognizable. They're replicable. And yet it's a unique arrangement of these gates. So that's high content capital. An influencer, like an attractive person who Mm -hmm. has a well-funded lifestyle has a lot of content capital because Mm -hmm. they can like take nice selfies in front of the French Riviera Mediterranean Sea, you know? Mm -hmm. So that kind of person has a lot of content capital. A TV show has a lot of content capital if it's very easy to screen cap it or make a GIF that's going to be a funny meme on the internet. So to me, content capital is this word for like what succeeds most on the internet. What is the most remixable, the most productive, 
the content that generates the most other content. Which is ultimately about engagement. Yes. Right? Like engagement is now the thing. It is the goal. It's people talk solely in terms of engagement. I'm like, yeah, but what if the content is just gross? (laughs) Yes. And I mean, like engagement doesn't imply good or bad engagement. (laughs) It's not like healthy engagement or unhealthy engagement. It's just attention. It's like we are measuring and promoting everything based solely on how much attention it can command and then how much it can grow that attention. And that seems very unhealthy to me. And one of the points that you make too, you're like, well, innovate, I'm not saying innovation doesn't happen anymore, right? Like you are not saying, but you're kind of like, well, you know, innovation gets pushed in a direction that the algorithm's dragging it. Mm -hmm. So is it genuine innovation? Like, are we actually innovating anything if in fact the guardrails are put in by robots? (laughs) It's a sad thought. I think like, I mean, creative innovation has kind of fallen by the wayside mm -hmm. in a way that many people have observed. In favor of optimization, which is right. this like horrible Silicon Valley term. And what culture is now is optimized to flow through mm-hmm. these digital platforms that command so much of our attention. So a musician has to make sure their song works on TikTok. They right. might not want to make like a 10 second clip that's, you know, pack every sound right. into a 10 second clip, but that is kind of what the platform demands. Like, A sculptor may not want to make brightly colored ceramic blobby things, but that's Mm -hmm. kind of the aesthetic that works for this format that we've created. So I think these platforms put a lot of pressure on creators or artists, whether they're writers or musicians or designers or, you know, fashion, kind of every arena, there's a lot of pressure for things to fit into the molds by which they are distributed. And authenticity becomes an issue, right? Like you get smaller vendors being copied by larger vendors in horrific ways and smaller artists having their images, shall we say, lifted by larger organizations who then turn around and make a profit off it. There is good, obviously, that has come out of the internet. Please don't misunderstand me. People have found communities that they haven't been able to access before. Like there is a sense of connection. There are good things that come out of the internet and out of social media. However, it feels right now that a lot of that is outweighed by the negative. And listen, part of this conversation does involve gatekeeping, yes, and gatekeeping in general. Like, yes, we need to have this conversation. We need to change a lot of things. But there is a piece where there's not enough gatekeeping happening. Like, we we actually do need some of these platforms to not just yell, it's all in the name of free speech. Like, you have to take some responsibility. Part of that is legislation. Part of that is hiring bodies to do this. I mean... Moderation is expensive. Moderation is expensive, and it's hard, and it's stressful for the people who are doing the moderating. Like, let's just be upfront about that. But how do we find, separate from taste, okay, we'll come back to the taste thing. Like, I just want to talk about the physical difficulty that comes with having such a free flow of information because there are certain people that benefit quite well and then there are other people who frankly are put in positions that they might not otherwise be because suddenly their work is reaching people who may not be great about it Mm -hmm. i mean it it destroys the context for a thing that we create also like the algorithmic feed 
might promote your work to people who don't understand it or who don't agree with you or who take issue with who you are right. fundamentally. It, right. it removes it from its original context and treats it just as fungible content to be delivered to anyone. Um, and I think, I mean, the gatekeeping conversation, I think we've kind of traded human gatekeepers who had mm -hmm. many, many problems for algorithmic gatekeepers. So previously, uh, you know, a book editor, a record executive, a gallery curator did pick and choose who to highlight in their imprint or gallery or label, whatever. Now, the gatekeeping function is what can get engagement online. So, you know, yes, you can put your stuff online, you can self-publish, you can put a song on Spotify, but that doesn't guarantee you any form of audience or any kind of attention. It just means that anyone can access it if they can even find it. And I bring up this example from Spotify that they just changed their rules for the platform that no song under a thousand plays will get streaming royalties as if like no piece of music that has under a thousand listens even matters and has any value. And that's just like, like that is a clear judgment on culture and on popularity to say that nothing that gets under a thousand listens is even worth supporting. Like that's as bad of a value judgment as any human gatekeeper has ever made. Well, especially if you think about it, the whole idea is that you can reach your tribe, right? You can find your people on the internet and you don't necessarily need traditional channels for distribution, regardless of what your art is. I mean, not everyone can get a gallerist, right? Not every painter gets a gallerist, not every sculptor gets a gallerist. So there are lots of different things where the idea that you can reach your market without having to spend crazy amounts of money or rent a storefront or like, there are good things that have come out of all of this, right? People have been able to launch careers and brands and, and all of that kind of thing. It just seems now we are past that point and it is becoming much more complicated, partially because nuance is dead, like nuanced. <laughs> if you're on the internet, is there any nuance? <laughs> there is not. There are also certain situations, obviously, where nuance is not really part of the conversation. I'm talking about your average interaction with a piece of art because that seems like a place where we can work this all together. But I find it kind of fascinating, right? Like people see the influencer doing the thing. And yet it's kind of like food styling, right? Like you have to do all of this stuff to make the quote unquote authentic <laughs> image. And then it goes out into the world and, you know, you hear these stories of people falling off of trains because they did a very stupid thing to get the perfect authentic photo. And it's like, it all comes back to us being messy human beings. Right. Like we're we just copy each other. We're we really just, just messy. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, algorithmic systems are not messy in a way. Like they don't allow for a wide diversity of identity. They don't allow for like a patient development of something weird mm -hmm. or ambiguous. Mm -hmm. It just rewards that like copycat mechanism that makes you take the same selfie right. in the gates in Bali or whatever that every other person took. And then you, post it on Instagram, put the hashtag, and then like you can see your photo along with 10,000 other people who took the same photo. So is that where what you call algorithmic anxiety comes from? Because that was another phrase where I was like, oh, I have to ask Kyle about this because that's it's a great phrase, but I was, I'd never heard it before. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's another academic phrase, actually, but I think okay. it's so applicable because we all feel it. <laughs> like 
like no one on social media has not felt algorithmic right. anxiety. Mm-hmm. And its origin point was from this study uh, an academic named Shagan Javer did with Airbnb hosts okay. who kind of were anxious because they didn't understand the Airbnb algorithm. They didn't know why their property wasn't showing up high mm-hmm. in the ranking or yep. had bad search results, whatever. So they would do all these tricks to game the system that mm-hmm. didn't work. But it was fundamentally about their lack of understanding of how the algorithm worked. They couldn't control it. They couldn't talk back to it. They didn't, it wasn't transparent in mm-hmm. any way. And that's the same encounter that we have with the TikTok for you feed or our Instagram page. Like sometimes we get delivered something or recommended it. And we're like, no, this is not me at all. <laughs> like how this this app has been surveilling my actions and has somehow like completely misunderstood me or is showing me something that's like disturbing or inappropriate or or whatever. And we can't talk back to that. We can't influence how it works. We can't twist the dials at all. All we can do is kind of just be subject to it and then change our own behaviors in reaction to what the algorithmic feed does. Well, and also even when you're like, don't show me this stuff, it takes a while for the robots to recognize it if they recognize it at all. And I'm just like, y'all, this is not like, just stop. Yeah, I mean, there's so few ways of talking back to the algorithm. And I think that's where the anxiety comes from, is that Facebook, Instagram, TikTok have decided that it is better for them to not let you change how this stuff works, for that corporation to just dictate how everyone's feed operates. Everyone gets the same kind of internal structure of this thing. They can't customize it. And that's just kind of the state that we're in. Like We're all flowing through these same tubes and these platforms we can't control or influence. Well, it kind of feels like this is a good moment, too, to remind everyone that we're the product. Like, when Mm -hmm. we're on social media, we're the product. We're the content creators. We are helping the content creators. We are the engagement. Like, we're the product. And there are times where part of my brain says, I'm done. I want no part of this. And then there's the part of my brain where I'm a knitter and it's like, well, it's kind of great to see what other people are working on or like what sheep are doing or, you know, it's just, it's not work. But then of course there's the work piece and you're like, it is a useful tool. It's just how much of it is a tool and then how much of it takes over. And that's up to each individual person, but it is really public. It is really public. (laughs) And how do you maintain, you know, you talked about sort of, Figuring out your online self, starting at a relatively Mm. young age using AIM, right? And now, like, I'm one of the last generations of people to sort of have had a foot in plain paper faxes and paper plane tickets. You know, part of my life was very analog. And now, I am perfectly okay to check in on flight. Like, I can, I pay all of my bills online. Like, I have a very convenient life. But we do have generations of people who've grown up solely online. And their experience of the world is different. Not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying it's different. And it really does make me question algorithms and how we interact, right? Like, I remember always getting the newspaper as a kid because my parents subscribed and we learned to read the newspaper every day. Well, now, you know, unless you subscribe to a paper via their app, you're not necessarily seeing what a newspaper's delivered, right? it changes some of the conversations we're having. Now, I'm not saying it's the only thing that should exist, but we've seen newspapers fall off a cliff 
because for a moment they were being promoted by Facebook and Instagram and everything else and put sort of all of their eggs into one basket. And now it's complicated. Now it's really difficult. And you're a journalist. <laughs> Let's talk about the future of your business, yeah. Bill. I know you don't oh, write man. for newspapers specifically, but you do. You're at The New Yorker. It's a weekly magazine. I've watched their strategy change over time. I've been reading The New Yorker for a really long time, but I've seen their strategy change. And it's really interesting. And part of that is how do you feed the algorithm, but how do you also show people that you're still The New Yorker? Right? <laughs> I think there was this era in the 2010s mm -hmm. when, one, a lot of investment flowed into media startups, particularly like BuzzFeed and Vox mm -hmm. Media and a bunch yep. of other operations. And the idea of those companies was that we will put out a ton of freely available content that will drift through social networks and algorithmic feeds and reach a new generation of readers. Like we'll succeed by just putting our stuff out there as widely as possible. And I think that has failed. Like that strategy failed because the profits from that attention were mostly soaked up by the, the platforms rather than the media companies. So Facebook succeeded, Instagram succeeded, BuzzFeed did not succeed. And I think now what's happening is we're seeing a shift both in consumers and media companies to instead cultivate a direct relationship with readers. So instead of you finding New York Times stories through Twitter or your Facebook feed, the Times wants you to use their app because that is an experience that they control. They can curate it. They can decide what's important. They can optimize it for the reader experience. And that reader is a paying subscriber. So it's not just a pair of monetized eyeballs on a feed, but instead someone who actively pays for this product. And that is a much more like direct and healthy relationship. I mean, I subscribe to three newspapers and I'm one of the few people who does that. And, and I look at three newspapers every morning as I'm starting my day because it's just how I interact with the world. Now, do I check my Instagram feed during the day? Yes. Do I post during the day? Yes. Do I not really talk about my life outside of the office and what I do for work? On yeah, actually. I mean, occasionally I'll throw something up. I have friends with dogs. My dogs sit. You know, <laughs> I will occasionally throw stuff up or, you know, but it's not really, I'm not a food, I'm not a taker of food photographs or anything like that. And Again, like people find their voices in different ways, right? And I do, I think there is some good that has come out. I think people have been able to find their communities and connect and whatnot. But I am curious to see where we go because I feel like we're at this pinch point, right? Like it's not so much a turning point as it is a pain point. And I think <laughs> the that's- suffering a, is maximized yeah, it, right it, now. It feels not- great in a lot of ways for a lot of folks. And regardless of where you are on whatever POV, I just, I think there are a lot of people who their anxiety is probably flaring because of what they see and what is fed them. And it's, I think there are a lot of people whose lives got complicated by stuff that is not necessarily stuff they would have seen otherwise. Now, does it also help that you know, broadcast news and newspapers are not having a good go of it either? Yes, that's, we have Many, many issues. It's just we're specifically talking about the internet and social media platforms in this conversation. So where do we go from here? Like, what do we... <laughs> yeah. 
you know? It's like, I'm, I still feel optimistic. <laughs> like, no, no, I, I, I'm not, I'm not unoptimistic. I just think we're at a moment where we need to have some serious conversations as consumers, as the product, as people in the world, right? Like, we need to be able to have conversations with each other. And when we have them online, they don't necessarily go well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, algorithmic feeds and like massive social platforms that exist for a billion people at once. Surprise did not cultivate the best space for human understanding and conversation. Like that just didn't happen. There are problems of scale and problems of the commodification of our attention and, you know, lots Lots of issues there. And I think we have to renegotiate our relationship with these sources of information and with the ways that we consume culture and news so that we prioritize the the creator. Or I've been thinking a lot about just the supply chain of okay. how things get to us. So I mean, in the in the food world, you have like slow food and farmers markets and stuff where you are buying from the farmer who grew the onion. I think a better version of the internet is one in which I can go more directly to the producer of something and pay them for what they do. We're seeing issues with Substack. Sorry, I just I had to bring that up. <laughs> I think we need to ask some harder questions about moderation. And I think, you know, you actually just stepped away. You took everything off your phones and logged out of stuff on your laptop. How long was your your sort of diet, your abstaining from social media? Yeah, I did an algorithm cleanse. Okay. I was like, this, these are influencing too much of my life. I spend right. too much time on social media, like many people. And so I just got off of them for three months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it was a very good experience. Like I had okay. been online, as I said, since I was, you know, a, tween or something yeah yeah, yeah. Um, spending an increasing portion of my life and my energy online and to like totally separate myself from that was a eye-opening mm -hmm. experience because I suddenly didn't have all of the stimulus that was coming to me all the time I didn't have the feeds that delivered like a hundred stories a, an hour or more like I was suddenly cut off from all of that and I think it made me like reevaluate how things got to me, what I searched out versus yeah. what was delivered to me. And it just, I mean, it solved some of that algorithmic anxiety in a way because I didn't have to contend with an right. automated feed. Like I knew how everything got to me because I decided that it should, mm -hmm. should be there. Has it changed now that you're back on all of the platforms? Has it changed your relationship to how you engage now? Yeah, really, it did. I mean, I think like a cleanse, like is a kind of reset mm -hmm. to your relationship with that thing. Yeah. So you, you understand that you can live without it, or you can cut out, you know, mm -hmm. like cutting out gluten or something like, like, oh, is this thing bad for me? Let me let me cut it out and see if I feel better. And it definitely did. I mean, I think I had to go back for many reasons. Yeah. Mostly because I write a column about the internet for my <laughs> job. So I would be a very bad columnist if I was not online. But it made me just like, I, I think it tipped the power balance back toward me rather than the feeds and platforms. Like I was better able to separate myself from things that were happening online. I was less obsessed with the minutia of Twitter stuff. And I mean, it also coincided with Elon Musk taking over right. <laughs> and destroying yeah. Twitter. That, kind of helped wean me off mm -hmm. it for sure. 
yeah, it just, it gave me some more agency in my life online, which then also mm-hmm. meant my life offline. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I take full advantage of having, you know, a supercomputer in my pocket. It makes my life significantly easier. We lose serendipity. We lose a sense of discovery. Like we can tell ourselves that we are discovering uncharted territory because you can look at a <laughs> volcano in Iceland, you know, from your phone on your sofa. Um, but part of me feels like, you know, it's like that old canard, right? Like the whole go out and touch grass. It is a little bit of, you know, sometimes you just need to get a little dirt under your fingernails, right? And yeah, I, I miss serendipity. I miss discovery. I miss messy, accidental stuff. It's like, you know, it's harder for us to get lost, right? Because we all have maps in our pockets and you can't like accidentally stumble across the best sandwich shop you've ever found in your life because you took a left when you were supposed to take a right. Like Mm. stuff like that. And I just sort of feel like we can tell ourselves stories as much as we do. And yeah, as human beings, we really like to tell ourselves stories, right? You cover a lot of them in this book. But yeah, the sort of glitchiness is missing, right? Like, yeah, the reality. I mean, I think surprise and randomness are things right? that you lose by allowing so many experiences to be dictated by what's online. Like, I feel guilty of it too. Like, I when I'm traveling, I will look up a restaurant on mm-hmm. Google Maps first and like check its menu, check its photos, check its star rating. Like, what have a thousand other people said about this restaurant? And that's very convenient and it guarantees like a certain level of, you know, success for me to know Mm -hmm. that something like will fit with my tastes or what I'm looking for. But it also erases that serendipity of just like trying a place that you don't expect or having to go somewhere just because it's there rather than something that you've tried it out online in advance. And I think that same process exists in music and visual Mm -hmm. art and everything that we've moved more online i tend to think now there's like more randomness and and surprise and just like going to a public library and like pulling a random book off the shelf than there is in your instagram feed because instagram is just going to give you more of what you've already looked for and like a lot of the content is just rehashed by the same people over and over again yeah that's the other thing too where i'm like okay i've seen that seventeen thousand times yes (laughs) i mean you just actually made me think of there was a great keith herring show in los angeles at the brood museum i'd never seen his work sort of presented all as one kind of thing and you know there's the mtv stuff that people know and there was some other stuff that i knew from new york but seeing this collection as it was it was mind-blowingly great did it involve standing in line did it involve buying like i mean there are barriers to i'm i'm not going to pretend like I am fortunate enough that I can go buy a ticket to museum. Not everyone can, but to be able to take advantage of that. And it's like, how do we make that more available to more people, right? Like, you know that Picasso painting, Mademoiselle d'Avignon? Like, it's this legendary painting. I kept seeing it in, like, textbooks and whatnot. I was like, who cares? It doesn't reproduce well on the page, right? (laughs) You're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. And then you see it in real life, and you're like, oh, that's what people were talking about. (laughs) Yeah, the power. Oh, of now I get era. it. Right? Like it's the difference between standing in front of something and and again, like how do we bring that experience to folks who may not have it in their backyard? How do we do that? And like we had that for a moment with the internet and then it got weird. And 
I don't have an answer. I just <laughs> I would prefer to say we could maybe figure it out. I just I wish I had a better answer than uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a part of me that just wants more like local culture in a way. Okay. Like the Demoiselle Savignon is a painting in MoMA. Yeah. And that's, you know, a hard place to get to, very mm -hmm. high barrier to entry. And it is amazing to encounter it in real life. But you can also have like a significant experience of art in a random gallery in your town or in a community art studio <laughs> or, you know, even checking out, you know, a vintage art book from the library like you can seek these things out and look for them and open yourself to them without having to be in new york city without having to see the one famous painting like many many people have seen starry night like starry night is a fine van gogh painting but fundamentally it's fame it's fame is like having the most likes. Like just because it has the most likes doesn't mean it's the best Van Gogh ever. You can go and see if any Van Gogh is great. <laughs> like painting your own painting of trees is great. Like I think you can access that feeling of art and satisfying creativity wherever you are, as long as you're not just like passively bombarding yourself with superficial content. You know, Kyle, that just seems like a really great place to wrap this episode and you're giving people a lot to think about. And, you know, here's the thing, the internet's real, social media's real. I'm just hoping we all look at how we engage with each other and with the platforms and the information that, honestly, we're being fed. Like, we really do sort of need to, I don't know, take some time, maybe even do an algorithmic cleanse the way Kyle did. But anyway, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Filter World is out now. You also do have an earlier book, too, about minimalism that was a lot of fun to read. And I forgot to plug it sooner, so I'm doing it now. Thanks again. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.